Greetings, everyone. This is your host, Josh, here. Happy to say that the Trans Natural Perspectives podcast is brought to us by listeners like you. If you find value in this show and you want to help it grow, please consider sharing this podcast, writing a review, and supporting the show. Head on over to transnaturalperspectives.com to learn more about how you can contribute as a monthly subscriber, as a one-time donor, as well as check out our blog. I invite you to contact me with any ideas you have for the show. If you'd like to be a guest, if you need a writer, or any other tips on further funding opportunities. I'd really love to hear from you. It keeps this show going, keeps me going. And with that being said, thanks for listening. chronic and acute affordable housing crisis and stagnating wages. People seem Hmm. to be going towards the tiny house movement out of an orientation of survival and a way that people can do that and also still feel good about themselves and align what they're having to do with what they believe in and they want to do is to bring in so much of the sustainability and the environmental viability of tiny houses, how they're off grid, how much significantly less resources that you use, how much cheaper and therefore less burdensome it is to heat and cool the space. So all of those things come into play, but what I'm finding and what the literature also suggests is that people are doing it out of necessity. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. This is the Transnational Perspectives Podcast. It's a show where we put nature in focus as we cultivate perspectives on society and culture across environments and landscapes. I'm your host, Josh Bennett, recording live here in Oslo, Norway, and I just want to thank everybody so much for tuning in today, whether this is your first time listening or your 12th time listening, because this is the 12th episode today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Your listenership is much appreciated. And yeah, if you haven't checked it out yet, go head over to our website, www.transnaturalperspectives.com, where you can find out all about the show, where you can listen to the show on all of the platforms that podcasts have ever been listened on. You can check out our blog, as well as a contact form there. I love to get feedback from the audience. I love to hear about your suggestions for the show. If you have questions about previous topics we discussed, or if you want to offer something that we should talk about in the future, or if maybe you want to come on the show as a guest, you have something you want to share here, that would be fantastic. Another great thing you can find on the website is different ways that you can support the show. This is, you know, this is a grassroots thing and we're all working here together to share these perspectives. So you can do that on any of our social media. You can follow the show and keep up with all our updates and so you can find out when the new show are released or any kind of news or things that we want to share from this end as well as you can figure out how you can support the show via our our paypal you can go to paypal.me slash international super if you want to make a one-time donation to the show and what we really really appreciate is if you want to become a patron of the show you know for just a few bucks a month you can support the show on a regular basis and you can find that information at patreon.com slash transnaturalpod and all that information is available on our website www www.transnaturalperspectives.com. Now, I have real excitement today to share with you a conversation that I had with a guest, Alice Wilson, all the way from the UK, urban sociologist doing research in tiny housing, maybe the premier tiny house researcher in the world, or at least I've ever spoke to. Alice Wilson is a PhD candidate and researcher in urban sociology at the University of York in the UK. And her PhD 
This is so cool. Focuses on the experiences of women in the tiny house movement, the potential that tiny houses have to address intergenerational justice issues, as well as how we can move closer to achieving our environmental justice goals in the UK and around the world through this avenue of tiny houses. As well, she's a director of Op House, which is a tiny housing project in New York, and she's the co-founder of Women in Academia. I was really eager to speak with Alice once I got to know her work because I think that tiny housing is something that's kind of part of the zeitgeist of our time. It's kind of floating in the air. You see it uh, in magazines. You see it on shows, TV shows, reality shows, you know, on Instagram. But what's really going on below the surface here? What's going on below the foundation, shall we say, to make a bad pun, of the tiny house movement? It seems to me, obviously, housing is a topic what it means to have a home is a topic that intersects a lot of other issues in society and culture. And that's why I thought it would be an amazing topic to have on the show today here on the Transnatural Perspectives podcast. Despite how much, you know, a lot of us talk on the show, how much we love being outside all the time, we all need some place to call home. We all need some place to seek respite to collect ourselves. So without further ado, I... Hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with the urban sociologist and tiny house researcher, Alice Wilson. Join me after the show for some reflections. Alice, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us here today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me, Josh. I've been really looking forward to this. Cool. That's great. Yeah. So, you know, could you just tell us a little bit, Alice, your your, your background from what I understand you're doing PhD research. You've got different organizations and projects that you're working on. So you just give us like a brief overview and then throughout we'll, we'll go deeper into that kind of stuff. Okay, perfect. So, yeah, you've summarized it very well. I am in the second year of my PhD thesis. I'm at the University of York, Mm. funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, which is a big sort of think tank organization in the UK that funds all kinds of great social research. My interest in tiny houses, well, as Malcolm Gladwell, among many others, have pointed out, people have a tendency to try and retrospectively construct linear narratives about themselves in terms of this experience led to this, and now this is why I'm doing this behavior, <laughs> when really it's a lot more random and chaotic than that. Yeah. Um, but by indulging in that in that human prerogative to try and make sense out of chaos, I think that my interest in tiny houses came from growing up poor, growing up poor in a cold house, in a very stressed family, and Mm -hmm. recognizing from a young age that money is one of the constraining or liberating factors that allows people to have a good and dignified life or a a difficult and sad life. And the housing costs were the main factor in that, I suppose. You know, that was always what we overheard in hushed tones over the kitchen table, you know, like, how are we going to pay the mortgage? Where's the mortgage money going to come from? Mm-hmm. So I suppose I grew an association with uh, linking housing costs to fear and difficulty and terror. And then as I grew up and gained more information about 
the housing sector, the housing crisis, stagnating wages, how there are particular gender and ethnic implications for how this situation affects people differently just seemed like a bit of a nonsense scenario. And I became interested in that from a scholarly perspective, because as soon as you're studying something, you legitimize your interest in it. You have access to all kinds of people, resources, policymakers, money that you wouldn't have otherwise. So I feel like a bit of a mole on the inside of a system that I, that I don't endorse. Yeah, no, I, I I totally feel you on that. I, lo- I love that. We're kind of working from the inside out. I think so. Like deep cover. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I think you summed it up really well because I was going to ask you a little bit about, you know, how did this all get started? And I mean, I think that's the case, right? You know, these are the things that we grow passionate about in many ways, a lot of the time for a lot of people come from stuff that we're trying to fix or yeah. trying to make better. And, you know, you touch on a lot of things like the overhanging of the the mortgage hovering over people's heads. And I, I mean, this is something that the majority of the world can identify with, especially, you know, touching on don't want to I, I don't get me started. But, you know, definitely touching on, you know, you know, a lot of the issues of capitalism in general and, you know, holding people hostage their time against their money, their land, their space all this kind of stuff. And so you're so you're doing your PhD right now. If I got it right in urban sociology. Yeah, so I belong to the sociology department at the University of York. Mm-hmm. My undergraduate degree is a joint honors degree in anthropology and sociology. I really revere and I'm grateful for the flexibility that sociology kind of allows you. So you can study more or less anything under the guise of being a sociologist. So my thesis Mm -hmm. examines economics, economic policy, neoliberalism, feminism, urban studies, critical geography. The list is long and greedy, and that's why Mm -hmm. I chose the sociology department. All right. So, like, and I mean, you know, because we hear these words, I mean, I have a good imagination of what urban sociology would look like, and you kind of described a lot of the different... Uh, intersections in this, you know, kind of study. But what, like, what specifically is your research related to tiny houses about? Mm-hmm. And is it, and is this like a new thing? I mean, is there a lot of research about tiny houses out there? Great questions. There is a growing body of research on tiny houses. It's quite a current topic. Tiny mm. houses aren't new in the sense that people have been. Yeah finding ways to live within their means for as long as human beings have existed. And there's nothing special or innovative about small and portable living spaces. Every culture you can think of through time has had some manifestation of what we refer to as tiny houses. Mm -hmm. My thesis initially, so I did my master's thesis two years ago, and that was Mm -hmm. sort of a pilot study for my PhD. So what I was looking at was the motivations that people state for why they get involved with the tiny house movement in the first place, and then latterly how their lived experience of being in the tiny house compares with what they expected. So my findings reflected the broader findings of the literature that's starting to come into play now. So when you do, say, a Google search term for tiny houses, you'll see them start to skyrocket just after, unsurprisingly, the financial crisis of 2008. Hmm. So around 2009 to 2014 really starts to take off. And in the last five years, it's exponentially increased the amount of 
cultural currency and references to the tiny house movement. And you can see that in the proliferation of Instagram accounts, YouTube accounts, blogs. The lifestyle is really something that people recognize now when you use the term. And it takes academics always a little while to catch up with what's actually happening in the world. (laughs) Um, So now that research is really starting to proliferate and I'm very lucky to have my interests intersecting with something that's starting to be uh, treated seriously in academic circles. All right. So, yeah. And I mean, probably the question that's on everybody's mind, you know, do you, so are you yourself living in a tiny house? I have built a tiny house. Mm-hmm. I don't live in it. And mm-hmm. one of the key reasons that I don't live in it is one of the key things that I'm examining, that I examined in the master's thesis and that I'm looking at now is that planning policy, building regulations and land use laws make it very difficult for people to legally live in their tiny houses. So we have um, planning permission to build the tiny house. So we've done that legally, but it would be illegal for us to live in it. So we're allowed to build the structure as long as it's an ancillary recreational space and not a residential dwelling even though for example how we've insulated the tiny house is significantly to a higher spec than standard building regulations our tiny house is better insulated more sustainable more energy efficient than the brick house that we live in but we're not permitted to live inside it when i've when i've tried to push on this a little bit in conversation with our local council and planning enforcers that they're great people Lots of people go into the civil service because they want to serve. They want to be public servants and the system constrains their ability to be forward facing, to be innovative. Planning policy is extremely conservative and risk averse. And the the general kinds of uh, responses that I've got from people who I've spoken to about this, it's unprecedented. We don't know how to legislate this type of dwelling. (laughs) We don't know what kind of planning label we would have to put on it to allow you to live in there the neighbors aren't going to like it because you're going to be bringing utilities in across the land and when i pointed out that we wouldn't be bringing in any utilities across the land because it's designed and built to be completely off grid it's unprecedented we you know people are like how am i going to get this signed off by my superior and the chain of responsibility dissipates and nobody seems to feel empowered or have the political will to make those changes that would allow me to live in the tiny house that I've built and that would allow the many thousands of other people to live legally and safely in the tiny houses that they've also built. Interesting. So yeah, because I think I was looking on your website that there's there's something about it, the the house is transparent portable like you know kind of like it has to have attachments so you can drag it in a view by a vehicle or something like that is that a requirement or is that the the, what we're trying to get to a little bit of both so what you've pointed out is a really salient feature of the tiny house movement Mm -hmm. a lot of the reason that tiny houses especially in australia and the u.s are built on wheeled trailer bases is so that they can be legally classified as a road towable vehicle and Mm. therefore circumnavigate having to meet the zoning restrictions and building regulations that a residential dwelling would have to meet, right? So you're legally classifying it as a trailer and that's how you can sort of get around the barriers to living in one. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a legal loophole. Exactly. But of yeah. course, then you have to have a car, right? Exactly. And you have to move the house every so often. Different areas, different states will have different rules about where you can park, where you can't park, how much that costs, how long you can stay there for. It's not conducive to living a settled life. 
But that's part of the cost benefit analysis that lots of people have to make when they decide, do I want to live in this way? What is it going to cost me? And what is it? What freedoms is it going to give me? So this is what a lot of my research sort of centers around is how people understand their own freedom and autonomy in the context of an economic environment which constrains and limits them, policy and law that constrains and limits them, moving into a, a small space which physically constrains and limits them but allows them a psychological feeling of enhanced freedom, a bigger life, more autonomy. And working out how those tensions play out in, in people's lives is what I'm the most interested in, I think. So, yeah, so <clears throat> in your study, who... Or like what groups, what's your, what's, your, what's your group that you're studying here? Yeah. Your culture. So when I completed my master's thesis, I was looking at people in the UK because yeah. of the small amount of academic and scholarly work that's been done on the tiny house movement, it's almost completely based in the US and in Australia, where the movement is a little bit older and more developed than it is in the UK. So I was interested to see who's doing it in the UK. Are they talking about the movement in the same way that people in Australia and the US do? Are they going into it for the same reasons? There's some interesting differences between the US and um, the UK, many. Mm -hmm. But one of them <laughs> is that whilst in the USA and Australia, house sizes have been ballooning over the last 50 years, the average house size has like yeah. tripled since the 70s or something. The opposite is the case in the UK. So our average house sizes have been shrinking since the 70s which is an interesting. interesting backdrop to choosing to live in a tiny space. But what the three um, geographical locations all have in common is a chronic and acute affordable housing crisis and stagnating wages. People seem hmm. to be going towards the tiny house movement out of a, an orientation of survival. You know, yeah, necessity. How, exactly. It's necessity and a way that people can do that and also still feel good about themselves and align what they're having to do with what they believe in and they want to do is to bring in so much of the sustainability and the environmental viability of tiny houses, how they're off grid, how much significantly less resources that you use, how much cheaper and therefore less burdensome it is to heat and cool the space. So all of those things come into play. But what I'm finding and what the literature also suggests is that people are doing it out of necessity. Mm. rather than looking for a way to live sustainably. It's like a happy byproduct of living in the tiny house movement, right? But there's plenty of ways that you can retrofit standard houses to be really environmentally sustainable. You just can't afford to do it because of the housing crisis mm. and stagnating wages. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so is there, would you say there's, is there like a certain class demographic that is uh, key in the current tiny house movement? Mm. I have been lucky so far to be able to speak to quite a range of people. The age range is pretty diverse. Mm -hmm. As I progress in my PhD, I'm specifically focusing on the experience of women. Because, mm -hmm. for example, in England, there is no region of England at all that can offer an affordable house to a woman on median earnings. Whereas every area of England has affordable housing to offer men on median earnings, except London and the Southeast. Women are 67% of statutory homeless people in the UK. Wow. A woman will need 12 times her average annual earnings to get a mortgage. A man will need only eight. So the housing crisis is very bad news for, for everyone but it's mm -hmm. even worse news for certain groups of people. So I'm specifically looking to speak to women and the women of color, white women, queer women, straight women, women in couples, women who are single, 
I think that seems to be sort of a, a divide between older women in their 50s and younger sort of millennial women just finished education that kind of thing so what i'm finding is that women 45 years plus often coming out of relationships not having savings not having a pension having been out of the workforce for years doing free labor in the home raising children and being very stuck how are they how can they live anywhere without being supported financially by a, a bigger earner who is in most cases a male partner. So they're coming to tiny houses out of necessity again as a way to escape unhappy and often unsafe relationships and a way to find independence often for the first time in their lives after their children are grown and gone. And then the much younger women who are coming straight out of their education and being roundly disbarred from the housing ladder, they they can't afford to buy anywhere and they recognize that for the amount that they would be paying in rent to a, a landlord they could be paying off equity in their own tiny house of course equity mm. in a tiny house doesn't work in the same way that equity in a traditional house does yeah. but in terms of who who am i interested in and who's interested in the tiny house movement women particularly young ones and particularly older ones that's super interesting that's that's really interesting so is this what you mean when you say you're kind of taking a look at these intergenerational justice issues and it sounds like tiny houses in a way could be one solution to kind of escape, uh, kind of divert or an alternative to certain more like standard traditional situations. Yeah, I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. So indicatively, in the 1970s, the average price of a house in England was £3,920. A bargain, we may say. <laughs> As of January 2021 in England, the average house price is £256,000. So to give an indication of how other consumer goods how much they would cost now if they had undergone the same meteoric inflation as property. You would be paying £50 for a chicken to make your Sunday dinner. You'd be paying £7 for a loaf of bread. You'd be paying £15 <laughs> for a pint of beer and so on. Wow. Very significantly, the weekly wage, if it had increased the same amount as property, would be £2,000 a week. In reality, it's £585 a week. It still hasn't even recovered today since the average before the financial crisis of 2008. Wow. Yeah, I mean, at this rate, who, who, who the heck can actually buy a house? People who already have money. And unfortunately, there is also a co an extent to which that's true about tiny houses as well. Because whilst the, the average, an indicative average price to build a tiny house is, say, around £40,000, compared mm. to a quarter of a million pounds, that's extremely cheap. But I don't have £40,000 to build a tiny house. Lots of people don't. So whilst tiny houses are contextually affordable, they're not absolutely mm. affordable. And the people who need this technology the most are still the people who are unable to access it. Circling back to something we were discussing earlier about, do mm. I live in my tiny house? And no, I don't because it wouldn't be legal. Finding mm. somewhere to put the home is another barrier that is that people benefit from when they already have social capital, right? So if, if we have friends who own a nice big farm in Suffolk or somewhere, they've got a big house with a huge back garden mm -hmm. and nice high fences all around so no one can look in and you've got privacy and seclusion, put a tiny house in there. Who's going to know? Nobody. 
But if you don't have access to those social circles and people who can help you with those material resources, and you can't afford to build the tiny house, you're not going to be able to be helped. Yeah, no, it is it is a really interesting point because, I mean, of course, it seems like there's these two kind of genres of tiny houses, at least in in the in the realm that we're talking about right now, kind of in the the new like Western trend of tiny houses. And it always kind of baffled me because I would see these, you know, it's been kind of a trend that's been, I don't know, in the air, you know better than me. It seems like at least the past 10 years, TV shows, oh, reality shows, I'm living in a tiny house, you know? And I always see these people and most of the time they're living on a piece of land and I'm just like, where'd you get this land from? So it's, it it sounds like one of those things where, yeah, it's, it seems like a, unique kind of avenue that is possible for maybe not i mean how big is the tiny house community in the uk do you have any idea about that like what percentage of the population is pursuing Mm. something like this? yeah that's a really great question and gathering more absolute quantitative data on this would be extremely helpful for pursuing policy (laughs) change right so i know that uh, new zealand is the only place that i know of where they have formulated a national tiny house association drafted wow. new legislature and are having it passed into law to sort of update really and modernize existing legislation that will legalize and, and comprehend tiny houses and make them safe and available and legal for people to live in. And part of the reason they've been so successful in that is because of a, a lot of voluntary hard work my hat is very much off to them. I've spoken to some of those people. They're fantastic. Um, but having the data, as you've just mentioned, on, look, there are loads of people who want to do this. Mm-hmm. I would love to be able to gather that information. I'm more of a qualitative than a quantitative mm-hmm. researcher. Yeah. But something that we are interested in doing ourselves through the Ophouse project, which you nodded in the direction of that earlier, I can talk a little bit about that if it would be mm-hmm. useful as well, is really copying New Zealand. We're not doing Mm -hmm. anything innovative or original. We've gone, look over there. That worked really well. Shall we do that? Yes. Okay, let's do that. We want to make a National Tiny House Association as well. We want to collect that data. If you look at, um, say, Tiny House UK Facebook groups, there's thousands of people on there. Of course, Mm -hmm. lots of the people who are on there might not actually live in a tiny house once it came down to it, you know, but there's certainly a, a lot of interest and oh yeah i saw i remember when i was trying to look up your particular website it was littered with the the whole google search was littered with like companies that you can buy tiny houses from and it it seemed like a really big industry actually i was like wow i had no idea Mm. what's going on here so like what 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 would you say at least on i like to i like to to spin the wheel of social cultural and ecological sustainability here on the podcast so when it comes to like socio-cultural like these kind of intergenerational justice issues that you're talking about. And I would say then we'll maybe get on to some more environmental stuff. What would you say would be in your project, but maybe in the tiny house movement, what would be kind of a goal here? Any? What particular? a great question. What would be a goal in terms of intergenerational justice? Like One of the who, first things I guess that comes to mind is I would really like to understand, and I think it would be beneficial for everyone who's interested in this, how to communicate information about tiny houses to other people in such a way that makes them feel like, oh, that's all right. Yeah, I don't mind that. Rather than what tends to happen. Oh, no, 
stigmatization to do with poverty and those people are mm. going to be drug users and those people, the tiny houses are going to decrease the value of my home if they're in the same neighborhood as me. That seems like a big sociocultural barrier. And there is an intergenerational component to that, right? Because mm-hmm. our parents' generation who have in general profited from this astronomical increase in the value of land and property are now the people who are putting barriers in place in the neighborhoods where younger people want to move their tiny houses into because the older generations are saying we don't want our assets to depreciate and the young people (laughs) who are living in tiny houses are saying we want to be able to survive please (laughs) so i think if there's some steps that we can take to bridge that communication gap and it's a it's a classic fundamental question of sociocultural change how do we generate empathy in each other mm-hmm. how do we communicate when we don't dis- when we don't agree on things and how do we get to somewhere where we can move forward without having to homogenize everyone's opinions and i mean that's a, b- a bigger question than i'll be able to answer <laughs> in my phd but i think it is of fundamental importance yeah, I mean, because I think that you know, in 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 many in many situations, uh, tiny houses included, there's, you know, it's it's in a way, it's kind of new, and I was, I was kind of interested to hear about maybe like the past, you know, what what other kind of tiny houses exist. But I mean, just just staying on this subject, you know, for the time being, it seems oh, it's kind of new, it's kind of trendy. Is this in? Is this out? Is this something that's going to stick? And yeah, it sounds actually really great to like put some put some content on there aside from you know the the reality show or the magazine about it selling you a house yes. and yeah what you're doing is actually putting i don't know for lack of a better term putting some meat on the bones <laughs> or something i don't know i'm vegan everybody's so doing that but but you know you know what i'm saying okay so sounds great to me what about some environment the environmental aspects like some some benefits or or, or maybe even the opposite mm-hmm. like the opposite of, the, <laughs> of benefits that play into this Ooh, any environmental things coming sure out? yeah absolutely so starting from a, a material science perspective as mm-hmm. i've alluded to before tiny houses aren't necessarily doing anything wildly boundary pushing or innovative in a way there's almost like a step back kind of approach to their construction and the lifestyles associated with them. So something Mm -hmm. as simple as building, constructing a building with sustainably sourced timber instead of Mm -hmm. brick, concrete, and steel can reduce the carbon burden of that building by 97%. So it's an astronomical reduction in, in pollution just building out of wood. that That's not very innovative. Scandinavia is doing that already. Lots of places around the world are doing it already. Mm-hmm. And it's a very simple way to have cumulatively an enormous impact on our greenhouse gas emissions. Most tiny houses are timber framed, timber clad. Most tiny houses have at least off-grid potential because of their legal status as not a dwelling, as a road-towable vehicle, that they have to be off-grid. Yeah, so lots of them use, for example, composting toilets. Loads of fun. Have you ever used one? Uh, uh, composting, composting toilet. toilet. Yeah, you get oh, personal, I'm big your fan, own big fan. processes. Yes, keep an eye on the gut flora. How's everything looking there? I'm Love huge fan. Yes, come on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> lots of rainwater harvesting, uh, grey water recycling, One of the main reasons that tiny houses are so environmentally sustainable is because 
80% of the energy that we use in a home is on heating and cooling it, right? And it's very obvious that the smaller cubic area you have to heat and cool, the less energy that will take. So, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I was speaking to a participant a few days ago who was describing how her electricity, not even including gas, just electricity bill, went from $700 a month to, I think she spent $70 in four months or something like that. It's it's a tremendous reduction. And there isn't a reduction in the quality of life that these people report, quite the inverse. Quality of life, much higher disposable income much higher, carbon burden much lower. Another way that tiny houses bring about positive environmental impacts is because when you have less space, you buy less stuff. You've got Mm. nowhere to put it, first of all, on a practical basis, but also lots of people report a a shifting of their values, right? Away from consuming and away from demonstrating who they are with products and symbolic consumption and refocusing a a lot of their attention on nature, how they spend their time, the people that they're involved with, the communities that they're a part of, the less you buy, the less your carbon footprint is. So all of these components are synergized in the tiny house. And that's, and they're all very simple and like not, not particularly, you know, boundary pushing shifts in construction and behavior, but altogether the impact can be really profound. Yeah, I, I'm just imagining. I mean, it's it, it's 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 kind of funny. Yeah, obviously, with the tiny house, you know, you're gonna. It's it's almost cool to have less stuff. You know, how can I make my house so minimalistic and compact? And I mean, coming from the the kind of the outdoor educational nature connectedness perspective, I mean, inevitably, you're probably gonna spend more time outside. Yeah, lots have, of if, people report that. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, you're going to, because your inside is more for, I guess, you know, sleeping. Exactly, it becomes more practical. And of course, what happens the more somebody spends time outside is the more connected they feel to nature Mm -hmm. and the more invested they are in protecting something that they love, which leads to all kinds of other pro-environmental behaviors. Yeah, this is this is this is the big thing over here in Norway. At least is the you know the deep ecology and the idea of if you, the more time you spend in nature, the more you begin to identify with nature. The more time, the more you will end up empathizing with nature, and then of course seeing yourself as a part of it, and then taking care of it yeah. because we're just the, we're just a part of yeah. it. So yeah, so wow. So I mean, that's interesting to think about, like the you know some part of the built environment which is usually seen as like a shelter which it is but actually kind of almost as a vehicle to push people outside yeah. too this is this is really has like a lot of potential yeah. actually yeah, yeah. i mean what what about as well as i mean is there have you seen anything in terms of like aiding in like homelessness i mean united states where i'm from pretty you know everywhere around the world homelessness is a terrible pandemic in itself so have you seen any work with that in the tiny house movement yeah lots of it that's where a lot of the really good press regarding tiny houses has tended to stem from. So there's a huge amount of fantastic work being done in the US. There's Dignity Village. There's Hmm. very easy for you to find that information with a cursory Google, but plenty of places have shown how quickly, cheaply and easily tiny houses can be built to address a chronic problem. They're also doing a similar thing in Scotland. There's an organization called Social Bite, 
where they set up cafes and restaurants that employ people experiencing homelessness so that they can uh, gain skills and earn a wage. And then twinned with that project is a tiny house sort of community, you call it, a little tiny house village, yeah, where they're, they're successfully living and, and thriving there, you know. And Scotland is many steps ahead of England in lots lots of ways politically. But I was reading mm-hmm. the other day, the Homeless Network Scotland launched this pathfinder for people who are precariously housed and people experiencing homelessness. Over the last 18 months, they have provided 404 tenancies and there have been zero evictions. The reason this information was being shared is to try and combat the stigma associated with people experiencing homelessness and people in poverty. You know, no one's being evicted. People don't want to. For the most part, people have no interest in causing a ruckus, in suffering with addiction problems, in being antisocial. They want a nice, quiet, boring, safe life. That's what I want. That's what most people want. And that's what tiny houses can help to provide. They're not a magic bullet. They're not appropriate for everyone. They're not appropriate for large families. You have a right to not want to live in a small space. That's also an option. But I think that as you've pointed out, and as many people are demonstrating with these successful projects, they do offer an extra rung on the housing ladder, an extra piece of the social security safety net that is currently absent or isn't widely enough available. One of our partners through the business that we run, they're called Minitopia. They run out of Den Bosch in the Netherlands. This is a fantastically successful project. Mm. It really is a melting pot of all of the good things that tiny houses can offer, right? So environmental sustainability, repurposing of otherwise undeveloped brownfield sites, providing extremely affordable social housing, so they took uh, an old, it was a, a skip, you know, like full of rubbish. The land was all grim and poisoned. No one could build houses there because it was it would take like millions of pounds to clean it up because it used to be a skip, right? So they used this approach called light infrastructure where they just covered the skip with layer of earth. And because all of the houses are not with dug-in foundations, they're tiny houses, so they're completely removable, there was no need to dig services like gas, electricity and water down into the earth. Everything was laid across the top. They built a settlement of 15 tiny houses there. And we've got a real range of people and construction types of tiny houses. So the cheapest one they have is a student who built their tiny house for 5,000 euros, all in, completely by hand, everything built within three months. So all of them have three-month time period that they can build their houses in so that they don't like drag on forever, you know, and people are like hammering away for like six months, annoying everyone, five grand. And then they've got some, uh, a couple who are like architecture professionals who built Mm -hmm. an 80,000 euro, amazing, gorgeous. And that project has been running now for three years, they attribute a portion of the tiny houses to the local social housing department of the council. So people are taking off the housing register on coming to live in the tiny house development there. A really well integrated community, affordable homes. Like it's been proven that this can work. So the precedents have already been set. You know, it's just a, a matter of convincing more local authorities to take the same chance. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, you're, you're doing a really good job at kind of like demystifying the whole thing, you know, because I mean, I think there's a lot of probably people that know about, you know, hear the word tiny house, there's a lot of probably preconceived notions about this. And some people think it's a trend. Some people, like you said, oh, maybe this is just something to that the city gives to homeless people or something. And actually, it can be all of these That's things right. and more, you know. And so what, what I really love about this and why I'm really interested in this stuff, too, is that it's just like such a it's such a kind of a nexus of accessibility for all kinds of people from all walks of life. And within that accessibility gives a lot of mobility for people. Right. I mean, whether you have a mobile tiny house or a, or a, stand, a <laughs> sedentary tiny house, but, but nonetheless, yeah, like social mobility and, and it gives you all kinds of options. I remember seeing this, you know, little like news story documentary about some guy that was trying to do this in LA and you know, had all these permissions and people were like super excited about it. And people were like, oh, finally, like, I mean, it was mostly for homeless people. And they're like, finally, I get to take a shower and now yeah. I can go look for a job and all this stuff. And then the, the city went through and like knocked everything down that day. They started, the police came in, they were like disassembling everything because some people, somebody else in the neighborhood was like displeased about this, you know? bizarre yeah. but 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 anyway but but let's talk about the good stuff because there's so much good stuff going on with the tiny houses tell us about in in the little bit of time that we have left tell us a little bit about your project with yeah Op yeah, House. yeah. Mm-hmm. so op house is a social enterprise business that myself and my business partner rebecca cart started in january 2020 we're a year old Woo, happy birthday. Thank you. Rebecca is an artist, a designer, has lots of experience with community organization and social outreach. And we were introduced to each other at York Design Week, which is, as the name suggests, uh, a festival where makers, doers, storytellers come together and share what cool stuff they're getting up to. And I had just gone into the first year of my PhD at that point. Mm. So we met each other and were mutually infused about what creative alternatives there are out there. We already knew of some examples of tiny house communities being built and running well, and we thought maybe we could have a go at doing that. So we've been working with the City of York Council, who have been extremely supportive to us. They're really enthusiastic about the idea of like a city lab where we build 10 initially on a a brownfield site, what we're trying to do is get a plot of land in what we call a meanwhile use. So the council have an obligation to develop the land and to provide council housing, things like that. But whilst they may have plans for a plot of land, Mm -hmm. it might not come into development for 10 to 15 years. It's going to happen. But in that 10 to 15 years, it's just sat there not doing anything. That's not good for the community. It's not particularly good for the council because they have to pay for security and upkeep of the land. So another way that tiny houses can be used because they're so quick to put up, take down, move, build, is that we can take over stewardship of that land for 10 to 15 years, give somewhere cheap and lovely and dignified and nice for people to live for 10 to 15 years. Can you imagine what different avenues your life could take if you knew that you had 10 to 15 years of paying, say, 20% of your earnings for your living costs rather than 50, 60, however much it currently is. A lot of options, as you said, open up Mm -hmm. when that that is a possibility. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do. Progress is slow, but it is happening. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping... We're hoping that by this time next year, we'll be able to start building. 
Oh, okay. So yeah, it's still in like the the, the pre the planning That's stage right, right now. Yeah. Getting the permissions, getting exactly. the permits, raising the money, getting the land. Ah, that's so that sounds so cool though. Yeah, we we do have some similar kinds of stuff happening over here in Oslo. Like you said, in these kind of meanwhile zones. And I'm always pretty impressed that the city actually is like supporting this. Mm. It's pretty cool that, you know, in the middle of a construction zone, there'll be like some coffee shop. Yeah. Just, somebody yeah. sets up for like a year or something like that. Different organizations pop up. So yeah, this is a really awesome use of space. And I applaud that. So what do you think? <laughs> the future. Do you, do you see like a viable future for tiny, this is the hot seat questions now. Do you see a viable future for tiny houses and should there be? Yes, I emphatically do see a future for tiny houses. Mm. There is no sane or rational reason why this shouldn't be supported in the strongest terms. All of social progress is agonizingly slow, all of it. And it takes the collective action of microscopic chip, chip, chipping away at things that we want to be different in order for us to look back in 50 years time and say, yeah, we did it. It'll probably take about that long. That's that's quite, kind of fast, really, but in the terms of social progress, you know, if you think about how long it took to gain workers' rights, the right for women to vote, all of those things, it's, it's a glacial pace of progress, but it's already happening. So yeah. the, the process is already underway and the, the further down that route we go, the quicker it will happen because the more people are invested and involved and the more legitimacy it has. And I think it's inevitable that there is going to be good progress in this, in this area. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're definitely, we're definitely doing a lot better than we were even, you know, a hundred years ago. Absolutely. Everybody from all different classes, all all over the human spectrum are like much more able to participate and we're still working on it, yeah. which is great. And this is what we're doing. We're just attacking from all sides. That's what I like to say. Attacking from all sides, from the from the from the sociology, from the medicine, from the from the architecture, from whatever. Yeah, so just, just in like the last few minutes too, I wanted to ask you. Maybe I'm changing gears a little bit here, but I was just interested to hear a little bit if you want to if you want to promo a little bit about your organization that you also I think you're co-founder of the Women in Academia. Oh yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So my PhD funder, the mm -hmm. Economic and Social Research Council, has different little branches, and those are our PhD family. So I belong to the White Rose Doctoral Training Partnership, and all that means is that I'm part of mm -hmm. seven brother and sister and cousins universities in one little northern area of England. Mm -hmm. So they have something called the Student Forum, where people from different universities come together in sort of a council to um, represent what the student body wants, what's missing, what are we not doing well enough, where, where are we being blindsided? And the position of women in academia still has a lot of progress to be made you know there there's a big leaky pipe problem where the further up the seniority you go the less and less women you find there's an appalling lack of professors of color of any gender and even more so when that's women all of the typical problems that anyone who pays even the smallest amount of attention to the world will know they exist mm -hmm. in academia as well publishing biases, biases about who gets grant funding, how much teaching you have to do versus how much research, how much women are expected to do pastoral care and looking after students. So we started a group to advocate for 
the, the kind of progress that we want to see and that our peers and colleagues want to see. We organize conferences and workshops. We have a website where we're building a mentorship program where young early career researchers can be partnered up with established women academics and get mentorship and introduction to friends and colleagues and publishing opportunities and funding opportunities. It's in its infancy, so it's just a year old as well. But we have big, greedy, ambitious plans for the future. <laughs> and yet we have all the social medias. We have women and women in academia on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find our website, womeninacademia.org. So have, have a search if you're interested and come join the party. Yeah, check it out. It sounds it sounds awesome, and uh, that's 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 just in the UK, right? Or is that worldwide? We started in the UK, but lots of people who are joining in are from international institutions and all over the place. There's no reason to keep it focused on the UK. It's an, it's a problem mm. everywhere in the world. So yes, it's, it's yeah, exactly, yeah. So if people want, if, and if people want to reach out to you or get involved with Op House or any of the other work yes. that you're doing, how, can, how is that possible? Yes. So how can people help? <laughs> so if help people out. are interested in Op House, you can go to our website. If you Google us, we'll come up at the top. We're ophouse.co.uk. Our Twitter is Ophouse York. Our Instagram is Ophouse York. You'll find us. If you'd like to get in touch with me personally for any reason, I'm always thrilled to hear from people who have any kind of opinion on the tiny house movement. I'm at neither both on Twitter and on Instagram. My research website is Tiny House Research UK. And there'll be my email address is on there. I, I'm difficult to avoid. Just have a little look in the internet. I'm there. Excellent. Well, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for coming and sharing your uh, your expertise and your research here. I think it's a great honor to have such a, a amazing researcher in the tiny house movement, which is like new and emerging and super exciting in the world of outdoors and nature and accessibility and mobility. And I'm excited to see what happens. So anytime we have some some tiny house related or housing related issues, we may have to have you back on the yes, show. Thank you so much for coming, Alice Wilson. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great to speak to you. Really appreciate it. Right, everybody and welcome back thanks for sticking around how could you not it was a very energizing and illuminating conversation thank you so much alice alice wilson everybody for coming on the show and sharing your time with us here it was very informative i think i know for myself it really uh, gave me a better framework and how to uh, consider the tiny house movement where it stands in society today a lot of the legal issues surrounding you know space and whose space is whose and what can be on these spaces like on these plots of land and what classifies as a house and a home it's very interesting particularly when you think about the possibilities of tiny homes and how it could in many ways alleviate a lot of issues in society as alice was informing us when it comes to people without homes or vulnerable communities low income or you know in some people just want to downsize and it has a significant impact on the environment in general as we move here into the future as we put climate change in focus so we're trying to you know rise people up and and downsize and kind of meet in the middle and it sounds like tiny housing 
is an interesting avenue to explore. Of course, a topic that I very enjoy very much that connects social, cultural, and ecological sustainability all into one. And also, you know, having a smaller house, as we also noted, can lead towards more outside time. So you get that nature connectedness in there too. So really fantastic topic. If anybody else is interested, please feel free to contact Alice Wilson as she noted in the conversation. And I will leave those links below. So yes, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to see what happens in the future with Op House and also the project Women in Academia. Please get in contact. These sound like really amazing ideas and maybe we'll check back in the future. Just wanted to give a little shout out too to some of our patrons here. We've got it since we announced last time that we opened up our Patreon, we do have some donations coming in. It's pretty awesome. Some subscribers all the way from my home state actually of Florida and the United States. Florida, amazing place. I could brag about it all the time, but I suggest people really check out Florida. It's a, it's a underrated place. Most people think Disney World, most people think uh, Miami Vice, this type of stuff, but, but we have some of the biggest animal diversity you've ever seen anywhere. Everything from alligators to wild horses to, you know, swamps and, and just manatees. It's just a really a fantastic place. Yeah, watch, stay away from Disney World check out the rest of florida i think you will be pleasantly surprised another donation is coming out of lithuania another one of my favorite places i've visited many times and i think that i think you'd also be pleasantly surprised by lithuania lithuania is uh, home to a lot of nature reserves and you can actually pretty much camp uh, where you want there similar to the the rates that we have here in the scandinavian countries most of the baltic countries also have the same and a really amazing coastline actually the baltic sea in general is covered in a lot of these beaches and dunes and if you go to lithuania there's a fantastic place called the coronian spit and it is basically i guess kind of like a barrier island of dunes that goes uh, you can bike it i biked it for two days actually a couple years ago so yeah go check out lithuania amazing food home of the bagel from the best of my knowledge and in general a lot of interesting history there too and speaking of kind of rounding it back out to architecture which was you know kind of the topic of today's show a lot of interesting architecture in these post-soviet countries and they tell a lot of the story of the politics of the society and of the history of the country so there's a lot we can learn from architecture as we did today with our fantastic guest alice wilson who told us kind of about different options in architecture and where architecture can take us perhaps solve a lot of socio-cultural and ecological issues that we have at hand right now into the future with that being said i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in today please feel free to visit our website www.transnaturalperspectives.com and follow us on all the social media donate to us on patreon and i can't wait to uh, get some of these new episodes out to you we've got a lot of good ones coming out here in 2021 and some different ones are going to take the show in some different directions this year so stay tuned everybody please subscribe and please share and please enjoy until next time get outside
Greetings, everyone. This is your host, Josh, here. Happy to say that the Trans Natural Perspectives podcast is brought to us by listeners like you. If you find value in this show and you want to help it grow, please consider sharing this podcast, writing a review, and supporting the show. Head on over to transnaturalperspectives.com to learn more about how you can contribute as a monthly subscriber, as a one-time donor, as well as check out our blog. I invite you to contact me with any ideas you have for the show. If you'd like to be a guest, if you need a writer, or any other tips on further funding opportunities. I'd really love to hear from you. It keeps this show going, keeps me going. And with that being said, thanks for listening.